Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the role online platforms play in facilitating sex work. Historically, sex work has been prosecuted on moral grounds, but more contemporary arguments against it frame it in terms of preventing exploitation and human trafficking. But the reality is more nuanced than that, with proof that the use of online platforms, in fact, makes sex work safer. In a recent article that appeared in the Journal of Entrepreneurship and Public Policy, titled Sex Work in Online Platforms, What Should Regulation Do?, Authors Nick Cohen and Raquel Colosi assess the impact of online platforms on the sex industry, focusing specifically on direct sex work, and evaluate what approaches to platform regulation are likely to align with the interests of sex workers. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here, Daniel. Yeah, thank you. I'm really interested in your article. I think it's a really important one. I'm wondering what got you interested in the subject. Sex work is a, a very large sector. It's also one that uh, is kind of quite hard to uh, get a grip on because it's illegal in many jurisdictions or at the very least stigmatized in other jurisdictions where it might be uh, not illegal or subject to kind of lesser sanctions in some form. I I suppose what we think is really interesting about the the paper that we put together is it kind of combines two lines of scholarly argument. The first is a sort of a sociological analysis of sex work that kind of looks at the challenges that this kind of stigmatized minority face and the kind of strategies that they've adopted in order to overcome those challenges, especially with respect to risk and safety. And that includes the use of, of online platforms. The other strand is I suppose, something that I've been looking at in the sort of realm of new institutional economics, Uh, And that's basically the role of online platforms in reducing transaction costs in the provision of quite a large variety of services. So things like uh, personal transportation, accommodation, and, you know, even kind of food delivery. And and what's kind of interesting is that the stigmatized nature of sex work means that it doesn't just affect like the reality of sex work, it actually affects the scholarship underlying sex work as well. It kind of means that you get people who are looking at this issue in a kind of segregated fashion. Uh, And it means that people who are looking at, say, online platforms more generally are not necessarily looking at the effect on these sort of peripheral markets in the same way. And so what we see this paper is doing is kind of bridging that gap between the kind of in-depth sociological analysis of of sex work and a kind of a kind of more overview approach, which is kind of adopted by uh, by new institutional economists. Well, one thing that really struck me that I thought was interesting in, in your article is at the beginning, you point out that historically sex workers have been prosecuted on moral grounds, but that the contemporary rationale against sex work is that it's against exploitation and human trafficking. So there's a little bit of a shift there. I was wondering if you could talk about the blur between consensual and non-consensual sex work and what it means in terms of regulation. Yeah, so I think the issue here with the kind of blurring of boundaries between what's considered to be consensual and non-consensual relates really to that lack of understanding about what sex work is and what it involves. And importantly, how varied the sex industry actually is. I mean, the only way really to understand the sex industry and what sex work is, is really to draw upon the narratives of sex workers themselves and listen to how they make sense of their work and what they identify as the risks and challenges. And really that's been a, a kind of, quite a significant issue and when policies have been made that you know that those narratives haven't been listened to 
Um, so what we see is that the sex worker is constructed as either a victim or a villain. And we can see this both in prohibitionism and abolitionism, uh, which underpins, of course, the suppression models, which we talk about in the paper. In the case of abolitionism, where sex workers are identified as victims, you know, there's no real space to recognise that these workers might be making rational choices about engaging in sex work. So really, there's this assumption then that they're working in the sex industry with no clear choice. And I guess it's here really that those boundaries get blurred between non-consensual and consensual. And, you know, just to emphasise, this is why it's so important to listen to the sex workers. And, and I'd say that's kind of central to it, their narratives, in terms of trying to understand it. When you talk about direct sex work and the sex industry, what does that include? You know, writers in the field of sex work tend to make this distinction between direct and indirect sex work. So in the paper, we're focused on direct sex workers. Direct sex work tends to involve direct sexual contact between a sex worker and a client. So that contact that's fairly intimate. So an obvious example would be prostitution. So whether that's part of the indoor market, so, you know, an example of that would be a prostitute working from home or, or in a brothel or indeed the outdoor market, which would include uh, street prostitution. So, you know, direct sex workers tend to use platforms to source clients, and as we mentioned in the article, for self-protection measures, which would include things like vetting clients. And they may also use platforms to receive payment for work and also to engage in other direct uh, sex workers. On the other hand, I think it's important to mention this, indirect sex work doesn't involve sexual contact between sex workers and clients. So it would include things like pornography and most forms of sexual entertainment. However, it's important to note that there is sometimes an overlap between these forms of work. So, for example, some individuals might engage in both direct and indirect sex work. And we've certainly, we certainly see that with the use of the internet and how sex workers might use online platforms. So they might use online platforms, for example, for webcamming, so an example of indirect sex work, but that might be a way of advertising a direct service that they also offer. So there is overlap there, and I think the internet provides that opportunity. In terms of the kind of sex industry and what that includes, um, again, this covers really a broad spectrum of sex-related businesses. So it would include those examples I gave you of, of indirect and direct sex work. But it might also include um, glamour magazines or, or what we might term as men's magazines as well. So it can include anything really that is constructed as sexual. So in some cases, um, even fetish-related businesses would be included in that sort of bracket of sex industry. So they're using different pages. You you had mentioned Backpage uh, in your article. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that and how sex workers use platforms like that. The simplest way to kind of conceptualize what Backpage was offering was a kind of paid personal section. I think some people might be familiar with, you know, seeking out um, romantic partnerships, um, you know, on on various websites. And uh, I suppose one of the famous ones was uh, Craigslist. And often as a subsection of these attempts to find romantic liaisons, some sections would allow for paid meetings, essentially. Uh, due to a series of actions by um, you know, US uh, prosecutors and law enforcement, um, these sections were kind of progressively um, controlled, reduced, and eventually eliminated uh, from most mainstream platforms. So in other words, most um, uh, platforms that were allowing people to kind of meet up and, uh, and make romantic arrangements um, 
I had to uh, stop allowing for the um, either the open or even discreet advertising of of sexual services. And eventually, in fact, they've kind of almost reduced the ability to have uh, personal sections at all. And uh, in this sense, this was the internet kind of adopting and adapting some of the things that, that you would see in the literal back pages of, of newspapers. There's a kind of history of back page that also involves the uh, publication of independent newspapers uh, that also relied on kind of classified ads. So the difference with Backpage is um, they um, resisted these warnings from US law enforcement, uh, basically because they thought that as a publisher, they had strong First Amendment protections to advertise willing sellers to willing customers and were quite successful for a time at defending themselves in court, especially when sued basically by saying that they were acting as a third party and that if there was harm or violence or coercion going on, it would be another party that would ultimately be uh, responsible. So that ended quite dramatically in 2016 with the raid of uh, sort of Backpage's headquarters and the uh, arrest of many of their personnel. And at the time, it was claimed that this is because the Backpage was facilitating uh, human trafficking. And one of the ways in which law enforcement were able to make that claim was that, in fact, Backpage had previously had uh, quite an open communicative relationship with law enforcement. And when they saw poor practices or what they suspect were illegal practices taking place on their platform, they would report it to law enforcement. And so there's there's quite a bit of disagreement within a kind of anti-human trafficking you know, NGO sector, what Backpage's uh, role really is, because in fact, uh, some NGOs uh, were were quite, um, you know, appreciated the fact that Backpage was quite open about uh, some of the problems in the sector and were actually allowing bad actors to be identified, whereas, of course, now it's much harder because the sector has kind of been deconsolidated in some ways. Since then, sort of around the same time as these as these uh, arrests, the uh, US government put into law the sort of Foster-Sester Act, which uh, actually removed some third-party protections, which had previously protected an awful lot of internet traffic and publication. So, so um, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops since. Now, many of these cases are still ongoing, so we don't know all the details that are coming out. But, but what's interesting is that uh, so far, the charges of human trafficking have not really held up. Uh, rather, uh, laws uh, regarding prostitution and uh, money laundering. So, some personnel have accepted culpability with regards uh, to, to those. And that kind of, I think, illustrates the uh, the problem that the whole sector is facing in the sense that um, often what you'll see up front is a claim for human trafficking. And then when you get into the more detail, you realise actually it's prostitution, i.e. Um, uh, consensual sexual activities that is in fact being regulated and um, and and shut down. I got the sense from your article that these platforms make sex work a little bit safer. I was wondering what you could tell me about that and um, what are still some of the risks that sex workers face? I think it's important not to assume that all sex workers face the same risks. Um, so, for example, there are going to be in inevitable differences between how direct and indirect sex workers experience risk. But even with indirect sex work, depending on the nature of that work, there are going to be differences. Um, so... You know, it's also due to that kind of the nature of the labour that they're engaging with, but also how that form of sex work is regulated and also the support available to those workers. And also really the extent to which their work is stigmatised in relation to stigmatisation. And Nick talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. We know that sex work is stigmatised. There's clear evidence to suggest that it's stigmatised. However, some forms of sex work are more stigmatised than others. So, for instance, we know that direct sex work is more stigmatised than indirect sex work. 
so what we see anyway is that there are clear connections between all these different factors and where regulation recognises sex workers as workers rather than criminalising them, ensuring that they have the same rights and protections as workers in other forms of employment, a general provision and support is more available to those workers. But also it encourages a process of normalisation, which is really important if we want to neutralise stigmatisation. So what this means then, it means that their work is less stigmatised and that sex workers are less likely to experience abuse, whether that's physical or verbal abuse. And we can see this in New Zealand, for example. So New Zealand are working under this kind of permissive model where sex work's been decriminalised under the Prostitution and Reform Act, and that was in 2003. There is evidence, for example, that the harms directed at sex workers have reduced following the introduction of the Prostitution Reform Act. I think it's also important to note that by being able to operate online, direct sex workers are able to assert more control. So for instance, by taking personal protection measures, that overall will reduce risks. That said, as more sex work and transactions performed online, the nature of risk changes. So it reduces in some ways, but then there are, of course, new risks. So for example, there's been an increase in non-payments or attempts to underpay workers, virtual stalking and threats, uh, verbal abuse. So so this is something that has increased. Now, there are some scholars, uh, Professor Tila Sanders and Dr. Rosie Campbell, who've conducted some some very insightful work about um, online sex work, and their, their work highlights the changing nature of risk in the context of online sex work. So I'm, I'm curious about what then regulation seeks to address and what doesn't it consider? I touched on regulation there a little bit. So again, just talking more generally, and, and maybe Nick can say something more specifically about online regulation. But generally speaking, then, there's quite a, a bit of variation in terms of how sex work, whether it's direct or indirect, is regulated in different places. So in the US, as we, we, talk, we talked about in our article, there's, there's been this tendency to lean towards criminalisation. But there's still variation between states and we see variation in Europe too. So overall, if we think about Northern Europe, legislation works under a suppression model. You know, this is fairly abolitionist in its approaches. So the aim here is eradicating sex work, but, you know, it also appears to have some intention to safeguard the sex worker. And it's the, you know, the consumer or the client that's penalised and punished rather than the sex worker. So an example of this, and again, we refer to this in the article, would be the Nordic or sometimes it's called the Scandinavian model. So, for example, policies that have been passed in, in Sweden that would criminalise the client, but not the sex worker. So this is a particular approach of abolitionism is really partly driven by the anti-sex work movement to take a a radical feminist approach and see sex work very much as violence against women. So they see sex work very much as a very gendered form of work. So the regulation of sex work in England and Wales is really moving towards a similar model and You know, two key pieces of legislation here would probably be the Sexual Offences Act and the Policing and Crime Act. And it's probably worth noting, really, that it's the Policing and Crime Act in particular that we really see this kind of shift in regulation towards abolitionism under Section 14 of that Act. So under Section 14, it makes it an offence for a client to pay for sex with a prostitute who's been subjected to force. Now, Of course, the difficulty here is defining what is meant by force. The problem with many of the suppression models 
is that they fail to acknowledge, and I, you know, I said this earlier, they fail to acknowledge the narratives of sex workers and they also ignore academic evidence. So ultimately, this leads to the inclusion of policies which simply decrease the visibility of sex work, pushing it further underground, which ultimately increases the risks and you know, it increases that stigmatisation. They're some of the, the key problems with regulation. Right. So it seems that the, the policymakers are oversimplifying the sex industry. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, based on your research, what recommendations would you make to online platforms that choose to serve sex workers? The first thing is possibly wonder if on a purely prudential grounds, whether it's a it's a good idea if you're an entrepreneur thinking of getting into into this sector. Another one would be, do you want yourself and your firm to be located in the United States? For the time being, as opposed to somewhere perhaps like New Zealand, where the legal issues would still be present, but would be rather less troublesome than uh, what, what has turned out for the personnel involved and the founders of, of um, uh, Backpage. If you're thinking about, for the time being, indirect sex work is um, uh, more easily uh, protected. So in other words, um, in cases where it's, it's not involving direct sexual contact. The important thing is uh, to do what all entrepreneurs would, would do, which is figure out what clients on both sides of the arrangement. So in other words, if you're running you know, a platform, you have two parties, you have sex workers who are interested in, in marketing their services, and you have uh, clients who are interested in, in purchasing it. You have to think about what they find useful and particularly what they find suitable for allowing for self-protection. So one important thing that you would want to think about is data protection. So uh, protecting their data and kind of making sure that your system is secure. One thing that um, I'm I'm looking at in a slightly different direction at the moment is actually a potential role for uh, blockchain protocols as a replacement for the traditional, I suppose, private corporate platform. Um, So it it might be possible for entrepreneurs uh, working in the blockchain sector to establish uh, systems which would allow the um, clients and sex workers to interact using a kind of mutual platform, so one that's actually controlled by uh, the users themselves and uh, kind of secured on blockchain infrastructure. And the advantage of, of that is is uh, once launched, uh, there wouldn't be an individual or firm that could be uh, directly targeted by um, legal authorities. This brings up another issue facing sex workers, which is basically having uh, secure payments. One area where um, uh, sex workers uh, have, have, a, have a major major issue is that major payment providers will tend to resist uh, processing the, uh, the gains they make from providing their services uh, due to what they might perceive to be a legal risk or perhaps sort of wider uh, ethics risk because of the, the nature of, the, of uh, the stigmatized nature of the work. And that can often mean that people might be collecting funds, they might be collecting income in an account and are intending perhaps to you know, make an investment, perhaps buy some property, or perhaps they're only using some aspects of, of their participation in sex work as a transitional form of income. And they can uh, suddenly find that what they've gained is, is frozen and they're unable to access it. That's another source of insecurity that sex workers face. The advantage that um, uh, kind of blockchain-based platforms uh, work is they do, they do allow for direct payments between parties without relying on a kind of, uh, on a sort of uh, trusted third party um, in operation. So in other words, if the network is sound and there are some 
an increasingly large number of, of so-called stable coins that have been launched on these platforms. So they, they tend to be pegged to the US dollar. So they're not quite as volatile as like the more famous ones such as Bitcoin. That is uh, another kind of source where I imagine um, entrepreneurs will, will already be, um, you know, be looking kind of uh, to develop that sector. But basically anywhere where there's stigmatization and prohibition of what are otherwise uh, consensual activities between parties, there is a role for, for some of this new technology, which is like offering a new way of launching platforms effectively. Well, it seems like there's a lot of risk for entrepreneurs to get involved in this industry. So, you know, I'm wondering what sort of regulation could help entrepreneurs actually, you know, to make this so that they're not facing prosecution for for creating these platforms. So the United States is a, you know, is a sort of is a federal uh, system with a lot of variation between states. Uh, uh, however, I think with the exception of Nevada, all U.S. states have laws uh, banning uh, prostitution to a greater or lesser extent. And, and most of them are actually, you know, from the old prohibitionist form. So they would have been more directly normative. They, they became particularly popular in U.S. states, I suppose, during a period of urbanization and especially during the progressive era in sort of United States jurisprudence and politics in, in general, where the assumption was that the state did not just play a kind of facilitating role for the market. In fact, it played a very important moral role. It was, uh, you know, part of the uh, kind of expansive vision of the of the police power. And, uh, you know, if you look at the reasons why these laws are passed, uh, they're very much, you know, kind of alongside a kind of normative belief that uh, sex should be closely associated with reproduction and and, and family life um, uh, exclusively. And of course, it, 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 you know, because they were kind of, kind of came into law, especially in the 1920s, there was often a racial dimension to this justification as well. So there was a concern about, uh, you know, sort of sex work um, and sort of more, more broadly kind of sexual license facilitating uh, miscegenation. Uh, which, of course, now these days, that would not be a, a reasonable justification in almost any jurisdiction in, in the United States. It would be considered you know, profoundly racist and bigoted way of enacting regulation. But what's interesting is the regulation persists, nevertheless. The justification for it remains. And I, I suppose the ultimately the only way to protect entrepreneurs from being at uh, risk of prosecution is actually to prevent sex workers from being at risk of, of uh, prosecution as well. Because ultimately, if prostitution itself is illegal, uh, then um, facilitating it, especially if you're facilitating it across state lines, which introduces a whole bunch of additional federal regulation, uh, that makes the sector very dangerous for entrepreneurs to um, uh, to, to, to be engaged in. That's not to say there isn't a lot that people who are interested in developing technology platforms, there's still a great deal that they can do in this sector. Uh, so for example, by acting as non-profits and offering uh, spaces in which, um, for example, sex workers can share details about the dangers uh, of particular clients or, or to share uh, self-protection and other uh, safety tips, that kind of thing. So in other words, allowing uh, sex workers to, to engage in collective self-governance that is not entirely without legal risk, but it's certainly much less dangerous than, say, doing what Backpage were doing, which was, say, directly facilitating consensual uh, sex work and also charging for advertising. Is there a move toward that? 
There is a campaign to decriminalize uh, sex work in various uh, more progressive US states such as uh, uh, New York. Um, there's, there's increasing popularity for that going in that direction. The main problem at the moment is that it tends to be local attorneys general, uh, sometimes who, who are directly elected on a more contemporary progressive platform. They'll often say that they're not going to refuse to prosecute um, sex workers. They're not going to be interested in getting the criminal justice system involved in the sector. But the, the challenge there is uh, changing the the legislation. That's the issue that we're kind of facing. Uh, I suppose a similar sector that's kind of been through this already uh, would be, um, you know, the, the kind of cannabis or, or marijuana sector, uh, where there has been tentative decriminalization and kind of the introduction of a kind of medicalization approach and then eventually decriminalization at the state level. And this has often been contested at the federal level. Federal authorities have often nevertheless prosecuted firms that are operating completely legally according to their local state jurisdictions. But over time, it seems like, you know, more mainstream investors and, you know, commercial organizations have got involved in the sector. And eventually, it looks like we're going to end, end up in a situation where uh, marijuana is, you know, is decriminalized, and there won't be quite the same amount of risk that's going on in, in the um, in the sector. So that, that would kind of be a model to, um, to pursue. Uh, but we're at quite an early stage, at least in the United States, with respect to the decriminalization of sex work. Unfortunately, it has to be a legislative uh, solution, possibly through referendums and initiatives. That can sometimes be a way of getting more progressive ideas onto the agenda more quickly than uh, than in legislative assemblies. Of course, in places like California, initiatives and referendums are quite a common way of address addressing these kind of injustices. Well, there are a lot of sites that offer a lot of indirect sex work, and OnlyFans is one of those. And I was curious about what your take was on their, you know, they, they put out that they were going to ban images, like pornography and things like that on their platform. And then they made a U-turn on it. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your take on that. Really, I'm, I'm thinking about the perspective of the, of the sex worker. And really what it does is it highlights that precarious position that sex workers using this platform and other platforms are in you know we've already seen a similar ban imposed by tumblr and i think it was back in 2019 the end of 2019 and um, which again had a quite a negative impact on sex workers who use that platform so you know these events create an atmosphere really of uncertainty and fear amongst sex workers and certainly there are a number of sex worker organizations after OnlyFans made that initial announcement about the ban who were straight on social media and reacting to that which suggested that atmosphere of uncertainty and fear what we need to remember is that sex workers might rely on OnlyFans as a source of income. So either through engaging with indirect sex work, or again, we, you know, it might be a space in which they advertise direct sex work and attract clients. So really, you know, prohibiting these sex workers from using these platforms brings really with it financial uncertainty. And again, we, you know, we're going to see an increase in risk, we're going to see an increase in stigmatization. I think there's two points regarding OnlyFans, when OnlyFans sort of announced it was going to sort of change its policy on on explicit content initially in the kind of ramping up of that announcement um only fans was facing a great deal of criticism about the possibility of um allowing underage uh, people to participate on on their platform um and i think ultimately you know only fans uh, seem to have quite a strong policy 
you know, obviously they had a formal policy that was preventing that said that you had to be of, of the age of majority in order to uh, participate on the platform. And I think they were also quite careful at uh, figuring out who was breaking that policy. Although, of course, people may nevertheless have um, managed to kind of breach uh, that um, that policy by lying about their age and kind of uh, presenting a um, you know fake ID or using someone else's ID or something. So you know that that did occasionally happen, and that was something that OnlyFans was very much um, uh, held accountable for by at least at least in the media and the court of public opinion. And so it kind of illustrates how you know only you know a very small number of cases in what is otherwise quite a well-run regime can nevertheless cause a um, great deal of, of problems, and thus creating security for the vast majority of adult. Um, uh, and consenting um, uh, sex workers who are making use of the platform. Uh, and the other side is, is that apparently the pressure to uh, ban explicit content came from payment providers. So, you know, the mainstream payment providers that, you know, handle, uh, you know, banking and, um, and uh, you know, money transfer services, which uh, OnlyFans relies on uh, as, as well. And uh, so it was kind of an interesting case where once again, it's kind of legal risk and ethics risk that sort of mainstream organizations perceive that is kind of causing these particular kind of entrepreneurial firms to suddenly face, you know, a great deal of problems because only OnlyFans was sort of founded in the, the United Kingdom and became enormously popular. And I think if it was any other uh, kind of sector, it would be considered, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, a wonderful example of a kind of, of a tech success, you know, quite a rare one. In, uh, in in the United Kingdom, because normally you'd expect things like that to to be based in the United States. And, uh, you know, yet because of the, the content that it uh, facilitates, it, it doesn't get that kind of prestige. You know, that illustrates the the issue of, of uh, kind of as a firm gets larger, trying to kind of uh, integrate itself into the mainstream payment services is, is a problem. And, and once again, it might turn out that um, uh, blockchain payment services provide a way of kind of getting over that um, hump and allowing um, these uh, these firms to continue. Of course, that might mean that um, law enforcement might suddenly take an interest in blockchain protocols themselves. So we're going to have to like watch this space and see how um, and see how they react to that. So in the end, after all your research, I'm curious about how you think that regulators should approach the marketing and sale of sexual services on internet platforms. What do you think would be an effective way to regulate it? One thing that I tend to put a lot of emphasis on is the importance of demystifying in addition to destigmatizing sex work. And if you do that, then you kind of recognize that there are some important parallels between sex work and other personal services. So basically services where someone is going to be traveling to meet someone, someone they may not know very well, and uh, providing a service. This might be, you know, providing accommodation in your own home if it was on, on Airbnb, or it might be letting someone, you know, get into your car and you're going to drive them somewhere, you know, in a, in a kind of carpooling initiative, or if you're, if you're kind of on, um, you know, on a, um, uh, a driving uh, platform. And, you know, the key things that people are facing there is that you want to know the person you're meeting is safe. Uh, they're not going to cause harm to you. They're not going to, you know, uh, attack you. They're not going to try and, you know, hurt your property or take your property or, or, or rob you. And these are all things that, you know, people providing personal services and traveling all over cities are kind of facing, are facing all the time. Um, and sex workers face that more so because they cannot rely currently on law enforcement to protect them when something, when something goes wrong. Uh, and the other thing that people um, really want to know is, are their clients going to pay and are they capable of paying? 
that's the sort of thing that platforms can really help with. So whether it's because they're directly taking payment and supplying it in the case of more lawful areas like um, you know providing accommodation or or, or transport, um, or if it's just basically allowing the uh, clients uh, to be assessed in order to kind of figure out, yes, they, they are going to pay and they're capable of paying, uh, perhaps by, by putting a, a deposit on in, in, in advance. So there's, there's lots of um, strategies that can be adopted once you kind of take the transaction off the street and onto a platform. So onto a, onto a private platform where people can talk, you know, using um, the internet in, instead. What, once you've kind of taken the kind of risk of trying to figure someone out in a kind of moment's notice and give people the chance to kind of coolly work out whether a particular transaction is worth their while and whether it's safe enough, then you dramatically increase uh, safety. Uh, and so that's what, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, platforms are, uh, are quite incentivized to deliver. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, they, they do that without too much, um, you know, sort of government, too much of a government mandate. They, that's what they know they need to do in order to uh, have clients and sex workers um, on, on, on the platform. What I think that states could do better uh, would be to ensure that that kind of practice is legal and also make it the case that so long as these platforms are um, willing to engage with law enforcement authorities when they observe non-consensual activity on their platforms, um, so long as they're willing to share uh, data and, and, and cooperate with investigations, and in fact, ideally to help initiate investigations when there are bad actors, um, then it, it, it would be important to give uh, platform owners the you know, legal protections. In other words, uh, so long as, so long as they, they cooperate when handling the bad practices uh, on, on their platforms, then they should uh, not face prosecution. They should not face uh, sanctions for facilitating, uh, you know, consensual activities uh, between adults. We thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about our guests and for a link to the article, Sex Work and Online Platforms, What Should Regulation Do?, please see our website. I'd like to thank Chloe Campbell for her help with today's episode and Alex Unis from This Is Distorted. This is Distorted.